We live in a topsy-turvy world. The politics of the Middle East have gone absolutely haywire with these attacks on Israel. You can be in an Arab Middle Eastern country. Oh, what is that? Oh, that was my home front command. I have the Israeli app here. There's just a in missile Tel Aviv, and there's a message to to get to safety. A missile alert in Tel Aviv? Yeah, I just got a notification on my phone. Um, enter a protected state space and stay in it for 10 minutes. There are incoming missiles right now. Jesus. Uh, going back to the, um, the, the, the issue of um, China, uh, I, have, I have one speculative theory. Well, I, I think it's pretty much the part of the reason. But why do you think that the progressive activists who are so vociferous in their support for the Palestinian cause, this Muslim, this ethnic minority group that's being persecuted by a far more powerful, you know, as, as they see it, right? This is, a, this is a, as they see it, this is a colonial imperial type battle. Why don't they have similar feelings for the Uyghurs who are also being persecuted, who are uh, who are um, facing uh, <laughs> the Chinese government, and you know, and they are in a in a country where people talk about white supremacy. But whenever I ask them to define what they mean by that, every definition they give you fits far more perfectly to what you see in China. It's far more extensive and more intense and more enforced. Uh, this sort of like racial supremacy uh, in China. And um, why is it lacking? Why is the support for Uyghurs lacking among Western progressives? So three reasons. The first, that globally, China is not seen as a propaganda enemy. The West is a much easier target uh, when it comes to stirring up propaganda. Israel is a much easier target because, you know, this has been a a 70-year-old issue, the founding of Israel, This is something that um, many Arab Muslim countries uh, are built on, hatred of Jews. And so it's easy to target Israel because of the hatred of Jews. The second reason is that uh, China gives these countries a lot of money. Even uh, the Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, about four months ago, this summer, he visited China. He shook hands with Xi Jinping. They talked about the um, they, they talked about the internment of Muslims and he praised it. He said, yeah, great idea. You know, I think that you should put 1.8 million uh, Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, which is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, why would any Muslim leader want to say that, especially if you're overseeing what people call an open air prison of Gaza? You know, if you're the leader of that place, you cannot support China in its uh, attacks on the Uyghurs. The third reason is um, that nobody wants to anger China. Um, because let's face it, the West, um, Israel, uh, you know, being democratic, um, they actually are quite restrained historically in their responses. You know, like America is not going to uh, shut off all aid to somebody simply because they're sympathetic to Palestine or, you know, or because they're, um, you know, America is not going to shut off aid to people because they criticize America. Um, but if you criticize China, this is the world's largest police state. And if um, Iran criticizes China, which they won't, 
uh, Iran will lose all Chinese help. If Egypt criticizes China and its treatment of the, the Muslim Uyghurs, Egypt will lose everything that China has been giving it. China runs a project called the Belt Road Initiative, which is a series of ports, infrastructure, roads, uh, funding dams, just going through the Middle East. I mean, it literally just all these infrastructure projects, um, it's trillions of dollars of them, and they're running right through the Middle East as one of the main focal points. Mm. If anybody says anything that angers President Xi Jinping, who is one of the world's worst dictators, they will be on his shit list, and they will be shut down, and they will lose everything. These contracts, and uh, so I'll finish just quickly, um, these contracts that Middle Eastern countries have signed with China, it gives China enormous overreaching powers. China can seize many of these projects for a number of reasons. Uh, this happened in Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka couldn't pay some of its debts because it had political chaos, and so China seized a port. China owns a port in Sri Lanka, and this is the risk. People are scared. They'd rather keep their focus on Israel and France and Germany and the UK and the US than, you know, wake the dragon that is China. That makes good sense. But that uh, with regard to, let's say, Middle Eastern officials. uh, But what about, uh, you know, uh, activists in the US like like BLM activists? Why aren't they on board with Uyghur rights? Why, why do they, everything you just said makes perfect sense, but I don't think that applies to those, uh, those types, right? And yet I don't see them coming, I've never seen such support or any actually among those communities for that situation. I think, I mean, I think I have, uh, I'll tell you what I think about that, but I'd like to hear your thoughts first. Um, so BLM and, um, you know, many of these, these groups, they, it is interesting how they've, they've taken up the Palestinian cause uh, and the terrorist cause, not the peaceful cause, just so uh, fervently. And it's something that, you know, it's it's a part of their identity now. It's, it's so um, weirdly fascinating, I find it, because, you know, a, a group that wants to push for liberation, they're supporting uh, Hamas, praising Hamas, which is a repressive misogynistic, anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans uh, terrorist group. Like, come on, if you're, a, if you're a trans activist from, you know, BLM and you want to travel to Gaza, like, forget it. You're going to get killed in the streets. You know, yeah. why even? Yeah. So why, why are they so keen on, on supporting um, the Palestinian cause? I, so I think that personally, I, this is not something I can prove, but I think that there was some kind of concerted propaganda effort that was very successful by uh, Palestine's leaders uh, in the, or Hamas's leaders in the past, or maybe even Fatah's leaders. You you see this popping up throughout history, and it goes back to, uh, you know, even the Black Panthers had a strong anti-Israel streak yeah. uh, in the 1960s and 70s. They also supported North Korea. Um, there's a long history of radical militant U.S. groups siding with foreign dictators. Uh, it's, it's just a, a fact of life. And I think that they, they look at the situation with their own rose-colored glasses and they see Israel equals oppressor, uh, Palestine equals, uh, you know, the oppressed that must be liberated. And Hamas is the governing body of Gaza right now, so Hamas must be good. That seems to be the logic. The second part of your question, why don't they care about the Uyghurs? It's because many of these far leftists support China. That's all it is. 
China is uh, a country in their view that has been repressed by colonial white powers, uh, a country that um, is merely making its claim to the world stage and mm. not getting bullied by uh, the U.S. and the West that, you know, stands up for itself. That's how they see country, a China of, uh, sorry, to see the country, they see the country as a form of, um, what's the word? Um, why, why am I drawing a blank here? So like, um, you know, self, self-determination. Okay. I think China for them embodies the values of self-determination. It's a country that came out of the rubble that had risen on socialist core values and um, that has a voice now on the world stage. This is what they want. And so they will side with President Xi Jinping, a dictator, instead of stand up for the rights of Uyghurs who are not really all that important to their cause right now. Mm, yeah, that does make sense. I would I would add that maybe for the more um, mm, academic types, there's also that there's also this, the the Marxist Leninists uh, Maoists you know they they side with China for that reason the leftist ones the extreme leftist ones I mean also in with Palestine there's that aspect but I don't think that most of these uh, woke activists are are really that you know uh, they're not brushing up on their on their Leninist rhetoric they're not that deep into the sort of more intellectual aspect of this I think it's Far, maybe at a higher level, uh, there's this stuff trickles down in ways that they're not aware. But I think one more facet that I would add to what you said is the sort of like racialization of some of these older sort of Marxist analyses that, but now it's done in a in a racial context. So you know, uh, for instance, um, Chinese are not white, and so therefore they're not immediately framed as the bad guys. Uh, whereas even though Israelis are not white either, I mean, Sephardim and Mizrahim are, you know, it's, it's Ashkenazi. Okay. But that's not what Israel is. It's not just so, but, but they get, they get framed as white anyway. And Palestinians are the, are, are not. And that makes everything sort of just fit together in exactly the way that is, that is, um, catnip for these activists i think that's that's an additional layer of it right and they can't really play that game when it comes to we i mean uh it, the only way you could fit any parts of that would be to say that the uyghurs are almost white <laughs> just because some of them sometimes actually do they pass for white so and that would that would be the wrong direction right so if the chinese were white then i think maybe you would see you know they would be this very powerful imperialist oppressive white supremacist but they're han supremacist and so you know at the end of the day it's not really about racial supremacy for some of these groups it's 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 not really about racial oppression it's it's only really about um white people and also china is opposed to the united states it's a rival to the united states and that's another part of the of the matrix, right, is that uh, anti-U.S. sentiment. And so support of China is vicariously expressing that also. I think that's also the same thing with Israel, right? They're allied with the U.S., so they're the bad guys. China is opposed to the U.S., so they're the good guys. It's very, it's not very complicated uh, math that they're doing here. But it's, I think this is, you know, they hate the U.S., they don't like white people. Um, so if any, if any, foreign affairs fit into that formula in a certain way that's it for them and that's just how they think through a lot of these issues is 
um, white people are bad. The U.S. is bad. Uh, yep. At the, at, that's that's obviously at the base level. I'm not talking. I mean, obviously, this that's very simplistic, and intellectuals are not going to make such ridiculous arguments. But the base level is where most of the people are of the of the movements, right? So, um, and I think we see that this week. Uh, I think that's what a lot of this this is. Uh, that that this sort of ugly display of of genocidal of support for genocidal violence this week with yep. Israel. Uh, so let me yeah. let me just give you an insight into the racialization um, of global politics mm. uh, of colonialism. So here's an article by Stan Grant in the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, which is the state broadcaster of Australia, influential in Australia. This is mainstream media. Uh, here's the title. To understand China, you need to understand whiteness, yet it's missing from the conversation. Here's the first sentence. It's not possible to understand China without understanding race and racism, specifically without understanding whiteness. Okay, so here, here's, uh, here's how the article concludes. I'm not done yet. It just gets freaking hilarious. So at the end, if whiteness is power... Xi Jinping is its champion. What? The continuation of white power in darker skin. Oh. This is Stan Grant, the ABC's international affairs analyst and a presenter of Q&A every Thursday at 8.30 p.m. The article's from October 2022, so it's not recent. But this is one that I have in my Hall of Fame and I always go back to when I want to show people how uh, the far left woke thinks when it comes to China, the Han Chinese, they can't be racist. You know, racism can't exist uh, as a part of being Chinese. That's how they think. Uh, Racism, by its definition, according to them, must be white. Yeah. Whites are racist. And anybody around the world who is racist is is doing it because they are secretly white. That's how these people think. (laughs) And it just shows how brain dead the hard left has become with all this stuff happening on Twitter, all the screaming over, you know, like I, like they support Hamas. They love terrorism. They're doing that because they equate Israel with whiteness and other Middle Eastern countries are not being, they're not white. So therefore they're justified in what they're doing. This this is, this is, that is an amazing article. That is amazing. That reminds me of the responses to black on Asian violence that we've seen in recent years where the the progressive or the woke response, whatever you want to call it, is to say, well, that's actually white violence on Asians because they've been like taught or they've learned this racism against Asians from white people. And so when a black person like kills an Asian grandmother, that's actually white violence on Asian people. That's not a, that's not really a, you know, don't believe what you see here. It's not really a black person doing this. It's it's actually they're they're enacting whiteness. And so the only way like they're so locked into this white fixation that when they actually see non-white racism, they they just have to fit it in. Like like Xi Jinping, well, he just must be white. He just must be a white guy because it has to fit into that that formula uh rather than doing the, you know, the intellectually honest thing and like maybe updating your formula, maybe change, maybe including this new information. It's like, no, no, it has to fit the formula. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. This, this selective outrage, which interestingly is 
this is the very argument that uh, that got me into trouble was the argument that I was making about the the sort of gross selective outrage of extreme leftists. Specifically, I was talking about Leninists in Seattle, but it was the same idea. It was, you know, absolute outrage over Confederate statues or even statues of George Washington um, and nothing about Vladimir Lenin. That's fine. Uh more specifically, the, the, the argument that I made on, on Twitter uh, was where I was talking about how the only thing worse than delusional racist uh, sociopathy, that the, the kind that you see in like genocidal tyrants, is to have the same uh, willingness to commit atrocity or support atrocity without the delusion. That's actually worse. To, to be wide-eyed and to to fully to be fully cognizant of the the harm that you're doing without being delusional or morally like blind in in some way and to do it anyway that I think is a that's what we're seeing play out now because I would I'm I'm actually willing to believe and if you look at some of the surveys of Palestinians you find that um, they are uh, uh, Given the conditions, given things like intergenerational violence, given the like incessant brainwashing and control of media that they endure in Gaza, that they're not fully, even when they support Hamas, I don't think they fully even understand what it is that they're supporting. I don't think they fully get it. You know, I, I think that there is, you can get through to some of these people if you could maybe put them in a different environment. I don't think that's true of people in the West who aren't growing up in this environment, who aren't brainwashed in that way, who aren't under extreme environmental duress, that the kind that would warp the mind and judgment, uh, they're more aware of what they're supporting. And they also have better access to news and everything. They can see all this stuff playing out and they still support it. That That is in a way even more terrifying, I think. The sort of like fully cognizant support for atrocity is worse than delusional support for atrocity. I think it signifies a decline of our civilization. I think that it, it goes beyond the left. I think that it signifies that there's an intellectual warping that we're experiencing now that we should all be worried about. Um, because if we, if we live in a world in which you can praise Hamas and praise terrorist violence uh, in, in massive protests on U.S. campuses in New York City, all throughout Europe, and that's considered acceptable, um, you know, I think that we're in a lot of trouble. You know, it's one thing to have your freedom of speech, have your evidenced opinion, and, you know, certainly to sympathize with the Palestinian cause, but yeah. to praise terrorism is a whole uh, thing altogether. Um, so, let, like, one, you know, back up a little bit to the 1960s, one of the other heights of the, the left, and, you know, one could even argue is a time that created the modern left that exists today. The left... They, um, they were protesting the Vietnam War. That was one of the major causes of the late 60s, and specifically the draft. That was one of the major points of contention. Yeah, there were hard leftists who sympathized with the Communist Party of Vietnam, you know, an authoritarian regime that did butcher its enemies. Uh, you know, there, there were people like Jane Fonda who did travel over there. They called her uh, Hanoi Jane. And, you know, there were fo famous photos of her sitting in an anti-air uh, uh, an artillery uh, pillbox with a bunch of Vietnamese soldiers surrounding her. I mean, that that's just playing into enemy propaganda. 
um, sure, you know, like what the U.S. did in Vietnam War, it was an unjust war. We shouldn't have been there. Um, but even in that time with those uh, radicals, there were very few people who actually sympathized with the Communist Party of Vietnam. It's rather that the left was protesting, one, the draft, the deaths of American soldiers being sent over there, and two, the war itself. They were simply saying the U.S. should not be in Vietnam. It's an unjust war and get out. It was not, we support North Vietnam. We support the we support the North Vietnamese invasion of South Vietnam. That's horrendous. And any Vietnamese refugee who lives in America today who came from South Vietnam, I mean, I, I know many of them, they would be offend, offended and upset. And they hate it when people say that because North Vietnam did invade the South and it did commit atrocities against its former enemies. It was not a nice government to be under. Um, so what happened? Like, why is it that we've gone from that, which is simply opposing U.S. war in Vietnam to today, which is I support Hamas and I support terrorism. Like what happened in the last, you know, 50 years, yeah. you know, since the early 1970s, what has happened that has made the hard left just go so haywire with these uh, violent ideas and to embrace them so broadly? What do you what do you think it is? Do you have a, a theory? I, so I don't think it's any single one thing, but yeah. um, you know, I think that our education system has failed. I think that we're not teaching uh, intellectual rigor as much as we used to. Mm. I think that it is true that this is something that's been said many times by many people. Um, but I do think that you know people get they they get the ribbon for showing up nowadays. I think it's something that your generation, my generation, you know, we're both millennials, kind of, or your early Gen X. Um, you know, we we both. Uh, dealt with this, you know, as kids. And I remember growing up, that was the case. It was, you know, you get you get some kind of trophy just for showing up. It doesn't matter how good your ideas are. It doesn't matter if you win, uh, you know, the, the debate contest. Um, you know, you just have to be who you are. And that's a good thing. Right. Um, so I, I think that's only one aspect of it. Um, you know, there are many other you know elements of our society, I think, that have fallen apart. I think that social media has sped up this decay that's been happening um, and social media has had the effect of breaking down uh, opinions uh, into these isolated bubble groups, you know, where everybody is listening only to their friends. I think that our society has become more insular and inward. If you're a leftist, you only talk to other leftists. If you're a rightist, you only talk to other rightists. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to find that cross pollinated debate, a good faith debate. I mean, go back to the sixties again and, you know, watch the debates between Gore Vidal and um, the conservative thinker, um, uh, what, what's his name again, uh, who created the um, the National Review. Uh, uh, Buckley. Willie, Buckley Jr. It was yeah. William Buckley versus Gore Vidal. They had a series of debates on TV. They had a TV show yeah. throughout the late 1960s. And it, it was intelligent debate. I mean, they were witty. They were having fun. They would snap at each other. It would get heated occasionally, but it was in good faith. And it was, you know, something that they clearly both enjoyed. Yeah, he also, uh, Buckley, William F. Buckley Jr. also debated uh, James Baldwin uh, on yeah. on race in America. And those were those were great debates. And um, more recently, you know, you had, I mean, uh, Christopher Hitchens, and he was like the great, sort of the great debater of our lifetime. And uh, um, I remember having, I mean, Maybe not everyone can relate to this, but I had friends on both sides of the political spectrum who watched Hitchens very closely. Even people who who completely disagreed with everything that he was saying, but 
He said it very well. He was a very, very good debater. Even if you didn't agree with him, you wouldn't want to be on the other side of him in a debate. And, um, you know, people who who hated what he stood for learned from him, nevertheless. And I just don't see as much of that these days. Now you have figures like, uh, I guess, um, who would be an example of like a successor to, well, I guess uh, Jordan Peterson, he's doing other stuff now, but he was sort of going around as a debater for a period. Um, but I noticed a, a difference and it wasn't, I, I don't know the number of years, but it wasn't that much longer after Hitchens that Peterson sort of emerged. And yet in that time, I noticed Peterson had very specific listeners and fans, and it wasn't such a across the board anymore. And if someone were to come up today, I think it would be even more extreme, uh, more, much more into our uh, echo chambers. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that um, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that that is the case. Um, I mean, you had to deal with this personally. You've you've been canceled. Uh, I've been I've been attempted canceled many times and I've become an enemy over the years of uh, far left hankies and communist party orders. You know, these these uh, liberals in America who, you know, and I, when I say liberal, I, I don't mean it like Fox News guy saying liberal, I guess, leftists, you know, American leftists at college campuses and in civics, you know, civic groups um, in places like San Francisco and New York, telling me that I don't understand China, despite, you know, having written a book about it, despite having lived in East Asia for 12 years, you know, telling me that I'm inventing stories about the Uyghur genocide, that all my reporting I've done for all these years is fake. It's all fake news. And I just, I just have an agenda as a colonial white man against China and against uh, East Asian people in general, you know, it's absolutely ludicrous. And you know, the more I listen to these people, so originally when, when these attacks started happening, they started attacking me around 2018 and 19. Um, I, I saw that there was a bubble that was growing and, uh, you know, I would post tweets that were reasonable. There's really nothing in there that would be, uh, you know, objectionable or against the terms of service. They might disagree, but it's not something to get canceled over. Right. Uh, and I noticed that these bubbles, they kept growing and growing and growing into giant swarms. And now, um, you know, posting, you know, most recently I posted this tweet this week about, um, you know, dealing with the FBI about, you know, turning over people, uh, you know, asylum seekers who are supporting terrorism, which I find to be a serious, you know, problem. But these people make it look like I'm a white supremacist who just hates refugees like that. That's the way that they talk. And it's like, dude, come on, guys, like have a little more intellectual um honesty and integrity and rigor well you um, can't what anyone's doing and it's happening more and more and it's just you know it's just like i'll post anything about china and even if it's a tweet that's not that popular it's got you know there's always one or two people who respond now who say like you're just an evil genocidal maniac you're yeah. an evil it's well, like sure you know i don't even listen to them anymore it's no I, well i never did see that's the thing i mean I, I mean i covered you know i was the u.s correspondent for nk news and i got a lot of people coming after me tankies at that time and i covered china and they came i wrote uh for the daily beast and other outlets about white supremacy and neo-nazis and so then i had the so i had the leftists coming after me but then i had the nazis coming after me and it, but it was all on twitter so you just you, you just don't pay attention to it. And their arguments are so 
you know, one guy attacked me once. Uh, one guy noticed that like 10 years ago, I had written an article about Korean democracy for CNN. And he was like, oh, CNN. Oh, you're you're a brainwashed moron. And I was like, what? Did you read the article? No, of course not. Why are we even having this conversation? Like, okay, that's all sort of a given, right? In the field that you're going to have these these morons who are going to attack you for literally anything. But it's when institutions decide to be led by the nose by those morons, by these cretins on social media. And then you have things like, you know, like the Seattle Times firing me over something that the Seattle Times themselves said was a bunch of a bunch of lies and nonsense. So this is that's the thing that's really worrying is when you see like in this last week, you know, you see universities or you see like politicians or I mean who cares what the the noise is on Twitter or on X but uh, it's when institutions of that are supposed to be institutions of of of, uh, of respect and I think it's especially harmful if like in my case when it was a newspaper because you're supposed to represent truth and uh, the facts and um you know, it, it, it's maybe even more understandable if it's a politician because they're going to have a take. Uh, they're going to have an angle and they're going to, you know, I get that. But for a newspaper to do it uh, or for a government to do it, let's say, that that to me is the most offensive form that it takes. And I see it happening more and more. It's very it disturbing. Is. So, I mean, the noise on, on social media will always be there. But when when, you know institutions that are supposed to represent the truth start caving to the to to people that even they themselves know that that it's nonsense what they're saying most of them know that they're just lying they're just you know it's it's a sport for them um yeah uh but you mentioned you mentioned your work on china you mentioned your uh the claims of uh genocide let's get into that a little bit uh so um easy question first <laughs> is it a genocide that the Uyghurs are experiencing or is that a conspiracy theory uh pushed by neocons in the west it's a genocide without a doubt it is a genocide it's well documented we are absolutely sure of what is happening in Xinjiang we've known it uh, since 2016 when the concentration camps were first open we have satellite evidence we have uh, government documents, Chinese government tenders. Uh, we have uh, research by numerous independent researchers who have no relationship with each other, people who I've followed over the years, but I don't even have relationships with them, but I read their work. Um, there is a, an abundance of evidence that shows that this is a genocide. So somebody on, on the, the far left who denies genocide might say, well, it's not a genocide because there are no gas chambers. We're not talking about the Holocaust here. We're, we're only talking about the internments of people who they say are, are suspected of terrorism. So what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. One is the uh, forced sterilization of Uyghur women. Um, this is uh, something that's been well-documented, and this is something um, that it, that got many governments. So the U.S. government, the State Department, and numerous parliaments cited this in particular. 
um, when they uh, declared the Uyghur genocide to actually be a genocide. The forced sterilization of women is a sign that there's an intent to, to erase an entire people, an entire ethnic group. Um, and it's also a sign uh, that the government has been doing this willingly, that they know what they're doing, that it's not merely uh, the internment of a people for re-education, which itself is very horrible, isn't necessarily a genocide, but the genocide is the attempt to actually erase the people after a generation. Mm. Uh, the second point that well, let, me, um, let, me hold you, let me let me stop you there. Do we have information on the prevalence of forced sterilization? Is it like two or three women, or is it more than that? Well, the Chinese government publishes its own population numbers, and the the number of new births has plummeted. Um, by an enormous number since 2017 when many of these policies were put in place. I don't remember exactly what the number was, but it could be in the range of 70 to 90 percent decrease in new births. Mm. The population of Xinjiang, uh, the Uyghur population, is literally being uh, liquidated and eradicated before our eyes in slow motion. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, they know that they can't use gas chambers. They know that if they commit a Nazi-style Holocaust they will become an international pariah. That is beyond the pale, even for them. So they've they've mastered this this tactic of slowly erasing the population and erasing their culture. In addition to forced sterilizations, there are many forced marriages um, between uh, Han Chinese men and Uyghur women with the intent of uh, of turning the Uyghurs into Han Chinese. That's that's the goal. There's also the wholesale eradication of cultural artifacts and items of mosques, of Uyghur texts, religious texts, historical, uh, you know, sites. Um, there have been so the Chinese uh, companies they have built parking lots on top of demolished mosques, many of which are 600 to 900 years old. Um, they've demolished tombs, ancestral tombs, and the tombs of saints. Uh, which is very important in Uyghur culture. The whole purpose is to erase the identity of a people. So in one generation, there will there will be no more Uyghurs. There will only be people who are citizens of the People's Republic of China. And that's a genocide. Yeah, right. And so um, moving on to the larger subject of uh, China itself, right? Uh, do you think that China is a is uh, someone that we can? Uh, what do you think we should do here? I mean, should we try the 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 spoken wheel approach? Work with them where we can, condemn them where we can't. Should we confront them full on? Should we uh, embrace them? <laughs> what 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 should uh, what should our approach be if you were um, if you were running the United States? So as uh, President Kane, yeah, in sitting in the Oval Office, my you know assistant comes up and says, "Sir, we've got to do something about China uh, right now. There's an emergency. Uh, China is which 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 would be the scenario? They're about to invade Taiwan, right? Okay. So yeah, scenario in that case. So we've been sanctioning China. Um, that means that sanctions have not worked uh, in the event of an invasion of Taiwan." I think so, you know, my guess, and I think the guess of the White House now, even, and I'm just speculating here, I think they believe that China is going to uh, encircle Taiwan and do a blockade. I don't think they're going to do a land invasion outright. Taiwan only has uh, 10 days of electricity. It's it's an energy-starved, vulnerable country. The It's also home to high-tech industries such as semiconductor plants, which are very energy-intensive. And as a result... 
um, it needs electricity, it needs energy, and that's the most vulnerable choke point. I think it'll be a 10-day, you know, two-week uh, blockade, and then I think that they're going to move in. Um, the U.S. does not recognize Taiwan as a nation formally, um, but the U- and that th- there's a reason for that. Um, people will jump on me for saying that, but there is a reason. The reason the U.S. does not recognize Taiwan is because it does not want to provoke a war or an invasion from China. And this is a stance that numerous people, leaders in the political spectrum, left and right in Taiwan, agree with. They do not want the U.S. to recognize Taiwan because they will be blown into a crater. So that's the correct policy, I think. Um, the, uh, the, the other side of this is that the Chinese government, um, you know, they do want to uh, reunite with Taiwan, but the U.S. also does not recognize the Chinese stance either, which is that Taiwan is a part of China. The U.S. purposely is, you know, does not say anything publicly. It's false. Many people have made this false statement that the U.S. Um, sides with China in recognizing Taiwan as part of China. That's something that, you know, people on the far left say to try to dismiss Taiwan. And it's not true. The U.S. does not recognize Taiwan as a part of China. The U.S. also does not recognize Taiwan as a country. It's an ambivalent stance. Um, so if I were in power, um, I would say that, um, you know, we are not under a treaty obligation to defend Taiwan. There is no formal uh, NATO-style alliance in place, but Taiwan is so geostrategically important. And then uh, second to that, we've seen what China has done to uh, democratic peoples in Hong Kong, to uh, people in Tibet and Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, and Inner Mongolia. Uh, We've seen what they've done in the South China Sea. We can see that China is an aggressive one-party state that seeks to subjugate and erase entire peoples. And this is something that they're going to do to Taiwan. They're going to erase the Taiwanese, to the Taiwanese people. They're going to erase Taiwanese identity. So those twin problems of um, the impending genocide of the Taiwanese people, which could happen, and the major threat to our global technology centers in Taiwan, the center of the chips, the center of um, you know trade. If China can take Taiwan and the U.S. will not do anything, the world is in trouble because that means every country around the world is going to have to bend to China in the future. The U.S. will not help them. So I would say that the U.S. needs to attack. The U.S. needs to launch a naval war, targeted naval war against uh, Chinese ships that are uh, surrounding Taiwan and to do it without mercy. Uh, I think that the goal should be to sink and destroy uh, Chinese craft in any way possible. And I say that confidently because the Chinese Navy is not uh, modernized. It's, you know, it, it's certainly been growing in the past decades, but the U.S. does have the upper hand and the U.S., you know, they're, I'm sad, sad to say there will be destruction. It will not be a pretty war, but the U.S. has to act fast to destroy any kind of naval blockade uh, from Taiwan right away. And then after that, we have to see what happens and then take it from there. But mm. I would say naval, naval conflict that's what's going to happen, and that's what needs to happen if, if China does invade Taiwan. What is your take on Xi Jinping, generally speaking, as a leader? Um, he's a modern fascist. Why do you... Those use... are str- yeah, sorry. I know those are strong words, and I'm very careful with using the word fascist to describe anyone in the 21st century because people throw that around. You know, they, they throw it around and they say... Uh, you're, you're a fascist, fascist this, fascist that, when they want to discredit people they don't like. Um, I agree, yeah. 
Yeah, fascism is an actual ideology, and uh, Xi Jinping and his ideology uh, come dangerously close to fascism more so than Maoism or Stalinism or communism. Um, Xi Jinping and his people talk about the, the racial and moral superiority of the Han race. And they don't just say the ethnicity or the group, they say the race, the master race. Yeah. Um, they talk about the importance of subjugating and putting the other in concentration camp, the enemy. Those are the Uyghur Muslims, the Tibetan Buddhists, the inner Mongolians, democracy activists, and, and you know, the Hong Kong dissidents. Uh, they want to put these, not just, they don't just want to persecute these people. Authoritarian regimes persecute. But Xi Jinping takes it to a whole, a whole other level, which is the mass internment in concentration camps, which is a fascist practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the genocide, the erasure that we just talked about, that is a fascist uh, practice, mm-hmm. the erasure of another ethnic group. Um, there's also a whole ideology. So if you read the books and, you know, actually, I, I, I have a bunch of books on fascism, but one of the major scholars of fascism who's in England um, wrote an incredible book about 40 years ago, an old one, a very academic book, arguing um, that what really fascism is, is that separates it from other author- forms of authoritarianism. It is, one, the attempt to take past glory and to sling past glory into the future with a sense of revival um, using modern technology and modern innovation to bring national glory and greatness to a people that has been unfairly persecuted. Uh, that's China. China is uh, the CCP. And sorry, I, I, when I say China, I mean the CCP. Um, I'm not talking about you know the Chinese people, obviously. Um, the CCP believes that China is a 5,000-year-old uh, imperial power that has been unfairly treated and subjugated and now has to update itself with modern technology, such as artificial intelligence, facial recognition, um, military technologies, and so forth. And it needs to bring glory to the oppressed Chinese people. Uh, That's a very fascistic line of thinking. Uh, The other point here is that um, fascism exists as a historical force, a social force to um, uncorrupt the party to take a society that's viewed as corrupted and incapable and to oppress any sort of um, either left wing or any sort of um, infiltration by you know, corrupting society and to bring strength to bring strength to the people, bring strength to the party. Um, so to draw a historical comparison in, in fascist Italy with Mussolini, this was the black shirts. They, they were these were people who roamed the streets and and you know committed violence against uh, leftists and dissidents and workers. And what they believed is that they need to stop the decline of conservatism from old Europe. They need to reinvigorate the conservative elite. They allied with the Catholic Church, a conservative force in decline, and they needed to bring strength and order back to the nation to stop the rise of communism. Uh, we obviously live in different historical circumstances, but the modern CCP is similar. What they seek mm. to do is they seek to convert the, the workers who are prone to uh, dissidents. They want to they want to convert the students, the workers, um, various affluent and intellectual classes from dissidents to nationalism. And that's the role 
of the CCP today. Mm. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you said you were not talking about um, the Chinese people, but uh, let's talk about the Chinese people. There is overwhelming support, at least as as far as we as far as we can tell, um, for Xi Jinping, uh, according to according to some of the data that I've seen. I talked to my Chinese uh, friends and uh, family and about this issue. Um, uh, there's sometimes I'm, I hear arguments from people where they'll say, well, how do you really know that the support is as high as it is? Maybe they're just, you know, uh, people are just sort of like unthinkingly answering these questions or what have you. Uh, what, what do you think is the level of support for the CCP? How informed is that support? And uh, what, what do we have to say about that? It's 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 um it's hard to tell because the CCP is so opaque and you know they're not going to release any accurate polling numbers uh, to the public to the global public. Um, there are polls that do come out you know in China, but they're frustratingly unreliable. Mm. I think that uh, the CCP, um, I think that they do enjoy general support among the Chinese public. I think that uh, many of the Chinese, much of the Chinese public, um, especially in the middle and affluent classes that have benefited from CCP largesse. Uh, I think that they've been co-opted to support Xi Jinping for the most part. Um, that said, you know, there there is dissidence. There are dissenting voices. Um, these dissenting voices don't necessarily support democracy, but they do criticize the CCP for being too authoritarian. Mm. Uh, and you can see this, you know, from what happened a few years ago with Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, who disappeared for a number of months, uh, simply disappeared because he had been critical of CCP policies. Um, the elite in China, the 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 capitalist elite uh, that runs companies, that runs technologies, develops software and so forth. Um, yes, they're they're scared of the CCP. Um, they don't like a lot of what the CCP does, and they're just not totally sure that you know they want to be on board with the CCP. But in the end, I think that they've been coerced uh, into compliance because they know that if they the elite, and I'm talking about elites, not you know regular affluent uh, middle class types, but the elites are in serious danger because if they challenge the CCP, um, they're going to be kidnapped and shamed publicly. I mean, they're going to be hit with a cultural revolution style, you know, like Mark, they're going to march them through the streets and put a, you know, conical dunce hat on them and put them in a corner and, and tell them how terrible they are. Like that's how the system works. The system is to have that style of, of ostracism, um, you know, to get people in line. And so the technological elite. The business elites; those guys are scared. Mm. That's why. That's one of the reasons why it's so repulsive to see these sort of uh, struggle sessions play out in the West. I mean, we call it cancel culture, but you know, it's it's when it's effective, when it achieves its goals. I think it's actually uh, a struggle session. The goal is not just to let's say get someone to um maybe get fired but but ideally i think the goal is often to get that person to confess their sins to say like yep. i'm i'm you know i i i screwed up i'm a bad person and then that it's like good and, and then now you know you be quiet forever uh that's sort of the the aim or that's like the true victory and that's a struggle session that's what that that's is that's the aim we we all have to wear the scarlet letter if we've sinned yeah right that's what they're doing. Uh, yeah. That's what's so terrifying. 
Well, but then, I mean, do you have any sense yourself of how widespread you think support is for the CCP among the people? Because even so, for I mean, I think about this question a lot. And for instance, this week with uh, what's happening in Gaza, obviously, we need to discern Palestinians from Hamas. They are not the same thing. And it's incredibly difficult, the project of trying to uh, remove and eliminate Hamas that, that Israel now faces. But even if they are successful and even if they're able to do it with an absolute minimal loss of civilian life, that doesn't really solve the problem because uh, Hamas, before they won the Battle of Gaza, they were elected to power. And recent surveys show that all the, that they're still favored by over half of the population. They're not the most popular party, but that's only because they haven't been conducting a lot of violent attacks recently. And so the people are kind of losing their faith. But the party that has, the Lions Den, they're called, they're now the most popular because they've been recently attacking. So when you have a problem like that where you can remove Hamas, but the people are going to sort of give birth to its replacement with their support because they, because perhaps you can uh, blame the culture, but it's... um, it's endemic. It's 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 sort of deep, a much deeper problem than just Hamas. And I, and so in China, the, I, I um, my assessment is that the support for the CCP is much larger. And of course, the project. I mean, I don't even know what you do in that situation. But I don't think that even if there was some future in which the CCP ceased to be, uh, that wouldn't necessarily solve the problem that we're facing. Although I do think that what's what's more likely to bring that about uh, will be that when this sort of the you talked about the kind of or you hinted at the, the the trade-off that a lot of Chinese have made more affluent ones that have benefited from the largesse of the party is, you know, uh, we'll provide you with economic development and you keep your mouth shut and you play you play along with the system, which has been working well so far. But what happens when the economic development isn't? being offered the way that it was anymore what happens when the you know when growth starts to maybe not decline but not grow as much single digit growth now um what's going to happen but anyway uh what do you what do you think about the the that sort of moral quandary there with yep i mean they're so brainwashed at this point many of them not all um that the problem is much deeper than the party itself Yep. Uh, One of the lessons that I've learned as a foreign correspondent, you know, I've been in just about every major authoritarian country you can imagine. Um, I've come away, and this is years and years and years, I've come away from every country with the realization that authoritarian regimes do have the support of a large part of the population. Maybe it's not always the majority. Um, You know, it might not be, it might not be these 5%, but they get in power and they hold power with the support of sizable blocks of people. So this is universal. Um, I would say that the only country I've been to that is not so, where the people are not so patriotic to uh, the government is Cuba. Um, I was surprised in Cuba to find that, you know, everywhere I went outside of Havana is that, um, you know, people really hated the Communist Party there. They thought the government had screwed up. And, um, you know, they, they thought that their situation really owed to the fault of the Castro family. 
Um, you know, it's they, they had no uh, illusions about that. But everywhere else I've gone, uh, Venezuela, Russia, China, Vietnam, Myanmar, um, where else? Uh, you know, North Korea. Um, North Korea is a tough one because you can't talk to regular people. But uh, Turkey, um, you know, Turkey, Qatar, UAE, uh, you know, I, I haven't been to Saudi yet, but I'm hoping to get there soon. Uh, it's just, you know, once you leave the city centers and once you go to actual small towns and villages, uh, which form the base of many of these dictators, uh, you find that there is overwhelming support in places like that for their dictators. Hmm. Yeah. So where does that uh, bring us, you know, to answer your question? Um, that's, you know, it's the case that, um, you know, the the world is broken up into countries and cultures and societies that all have their own values and their ways of doing things. Um, and, you know, the typical person who's grown up in, uh, you know, Beijing, China, who, you know, maybe didn't study overseas, but has spent the, most of their life in China, uh, will probably be a bit of a CCP supporter. You know, maybe they'll disagree with some of it, but they will support the power of the CCP, which has benefited them with the largesse of the last 30 years. Um, you know, your typical um, Palestinian who has grown up with nothing but war and nothing but, you know, either the PLO or Fatah or Hamas or some other, uh, you know, unhinged terrorist group, um, you know, they're, they're not going to have a culture of, uh, you know, let's go to the local town hall and go to a hearing by the mayor and then vote on a resolution. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's the law of the gun. It's, you know, well, there's somebody I don't like, and I think they should die. Um, and it's just the reality. It's just, it's, what I'm saying is that it's the world that we have to grapple with. It's the world that we have to deal with. And I don't think that we should look at the Israel-Palestine conflict or any conflict for that matter with the rose-colored glasses of, you know, we can change them. Hmm. We can build, we can bring democracy here. Um, there are too many people who are opposed to democracy. And so I think that the West in particular and, uh, you know, Japan and South Korea, the, the, the few democracies that do exist in the world, I think that we need to do a better job of, of keeping to ourselves when it comes to protecting democracy instead of trying to spread it to other places. Mm, interesting. Uh, do you are you do you consider yourself uh, an isolationist in that sense? And, and uh, we should the United States should essentially stay out of foreign conflict as much as possible. No, no, I'm not an isolationist at all. I do think the U.S. Um, should be engaged with the world. I do think that we should do what we can to support civil liberties and human rights and democracy wherever we can. But I don't think we should do it with the expectation of of changing much. You know, that's that's what I think. Uh, I think that, you know, as a liberal democracy, we do have to let dissidents and, uh, you know, and LGBTQ people and atheists in the uh, Middle East, for example, we need to let them know that we are on their side and that we are a refuge for them, that, you know, if they do want to flee Saudi Arabia, uh, we will take them with open arms because we believe in the same values that we believe that they believe in. Um, I think that that should be the foreign policy position of the U.S. on human rights. But I don't think the foreign policy position should be that, um, you know, we're going to invade Iraq and expect democracy. I got you. That's what I'm yeah, right. Uh, so, um, let's go back to China and, uh, paint a picture for us, if you would, of the surveillance state and its level of sophistication and, and um, yeah, uh, I mean, 
He wrote a book about this. This is the most sophisticated surveillance state ever invented in human history. It's terrifying. Um, I've been there. I've been to Xinjiang, China many times uh, where the surveillance state is set up. Uh, I was last there in 2017. I absolutely cannot return. I was detained and harassed. Uh, and because of my book, I, I know that it's just not possible to go back there. Mm. Um, this is an area where uh, you're you're living in a science fiction novel. Um, you arrive. Uh, there are cameras everywhere. Every you're street talking, corner. You're talking about Xinjiang specifically. Xinjiang specifically. Okay. All of China is a bit of a science fiction novel now, but Xinjiang is the worst of them. Um, so imagine, uh, you know, something like a, a post-apocalyptic science fiction movie, um, like. Uh, so I, maybe a good example is Minority Report, um, you know, by Philip K. Dick. It's a novella. It was turned into the Tom Cruise movie about 20 years ago. Uh, and this is a, a book and a movie about a police force that has the ability um, to foresee murders that are going to happen. Um, and then somebody is framed, a uh, police officer is framed, uh, you know, over a political thing that's happening political story and then um that person has to prove his innocence and get out of the system after being targeted he you know and it raises it's a it's a brilliant novella uh the, the book is different from the movie um but it's a great 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 book because it raises all these uh, incredible questions about the nature of civil liberties and you know if you know that something's going to happen if you're sure of it um you know should you you know act on it in the sense of um bringing criminal proceedings. If somebody is going to commit a murder and you have proof of that, um, does that make them a murderer and a criminal or do we have free will and can that be stopped? Can they change their mind? Are they condemned, you know, are they condemned to do it when they've decided? And, you know, who knows? These are ethical questions, but um, sorry if I'm digressing on your podcast, you can cut stuff out if I start talking too much. That's good. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this is China. Xinjiang, China is, the uh, true life embodiment of minority reports. The Chinese government runs an AI system called the Integrated Joint Operation Platform. It's a software platform that gathers data, mass data on every person in every square inch of this region of Xinjiang, which is about twice the size of Texas. And it gathers this data through um, millions of cameras that are everywhere, through police reports, police sightings, um, you know, through criminal records and arrest records through, uh, you know, um, you know, like civilians stitching on their fellow uh, citizens. Uh, like it's a system. It, it monitors your purchases through apps. It monitors what you're doing on the Internet. It monitors your smartphone. And what it does is it, it pieces this all together to create an image of you and to predict what you're going to do in the future. It pieces it together and tells the, the one party state of China that um, you are going to commit a terrorist act or a crime sometime in the future. You are a risk. It says you are disloyal and you need to be taken to a concentration camp. So um, it'll be in the middle of the night. The police will knock on your door. They'll tell you to come with them. They'll take you away and they will house you in a camp where you are doomed to be uh, psychologically tortured, brainwashed, uh, physically tortured, put into a small cell with 30 people, um, just horrible, horrific conditions designed to break you, break your identity and break your personality and turn you into a robot who follows the whims of the police state. Um, this is Minority Report. This is George Orwell. This is uh, all the major science fiction authors of the 20th century, what they were writing about, what they were warning about. 
what happens when uh, fascist authoritarianism goes too far and they have the tools to get it done. Well, now we live in that world. This is the world that we live in. It's here already. And it's not a question of what's going to happen or what the world's going to look like. It's a question of how do we respond now? What do we do about this? And the answer to that is that we have to stop these technologies from getting in the hands of the wrong people. Hmm. Uh, and is China exporting this technology to other nations? Oh, all over, everywhere. They're exporting it uh, everywhere they can. Um, they're exporting police technologies, surveillance technologies. The main targets are authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian regimes, um, many in sub-Saharan Africa, Central Asia, uh, South America, so places like Venezuela, places like um, you know Saudi Arabia, um, Uganda is another one, South Africa, which is not, which is democratic, but has some authoritarian tendencies. Uh, many of these countries have been using Chinese technology to spy on the opposition, to spy on their citizens, uh, to concoct uh, criminal, uh, you know, criminal accusations that are probably false. Um, Chinese technology is extremely sophisticated in its surveillance capabilities. And there are so many buyers out there who want to take this on. Mm. What do you think is the is it is it simply a business deal for China or is it something uh, bigger than that in exporting this technology to all these authoritarian states? Oh, it's something bigger, without a doubt. I mean, Xi Jinping has said it himself that technology is the sharp weapon of the state. That's a quote by him from 2013 in a speech he gave. Mm -hmm. China, we've got to be really worried about China because. It, they don't operate in the same way that uh, we operate in America. The CCP sees Chinese technology companies as extensions of state power. If you are an entrepreneur or a startup founder uh, in China, you are expected to support the national project and to follow the CCP when they want it. And that means influencing the world. That means exporting with political purposes, not just business purposes. Here in America, we're different. You know, we, we see companies generally as uh, independent entities that, you know, have a series of legal contracts and obligations set up, but that are free to do as they please within the bounds of the law to make a profit. It's all about maximizing profit. Um, you know, somebody like Elon Musk might see himself as being a, a national champion, you know, of launching the SpaceX rockets and so forth. But most American business people, they're, they're not like that at all. They're, they're more interested in their next quarterly earnings reports, and they're not interested in advancing state power around the world. Um, so the idea here is that China will give this technology to authoritarian states. They will become empowered with it, and they will be China's friends, and China will have a greater sort of influence globally and help destabilize Western hold on power. Is that the... That's exactly what happening happening that's exactly what's happening. They are um China does want to destabilize the global order which is dominated by the United Nations and the the western powers. Um they want to make the world more favorable to China. Uh and to to an extent, you know, you have to see the world from their eyes. Um uh, you know, they do want to act in their interests and it is in their interest to change the world order in their favor that will allow for their system to flourish. But we have to stop that because we cannot have an authoritarian world order in which Russia and China and other major regimes are trying to export their ways of doing things and to undermine the liberal order that now exists. And what is what are I mean, are there 
any ways in which this uh, regular folks uh, can have any influence here at all? Or is this simply uh, something that is beyond most people who are probably listening to this? Don't buy Chinese products. Um, you know, and when I say Chinese products, I mean don't buy Chinese smartphones. Don't use um, you know Chinese uh, advanced technologies. If you're a company, don't buy um, Chinese semiconductors. I mean, obviously, you can't do that in America as much anymore. But look, you know, don't don't buy stuff. You know, don't buy advanced technology from China. Uh, I'm not a fan of like boycotting the whole country. I think that would be kind of unfair. So, you know, if you're talking about buying a, a plastic widget, like yeah, go, like who cares about that? But I'm talking about computers, smartphones, uh, it, you know, um, smart cars, uh, you know, anything that has a Chinese uh, software or technological components will be designed both to make a sale, but also to support the interests of the state. Uh, don't use TikTok. Stay off TikTok. Oh, I, should, TikTok, I shouldn't download TikTok? Why not? Don't download TikTok. So it might be fun to post those cat videos and forking and all that and, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's fun to play around with that thing. But if you download TikTok, you are actively supporting a company that must report that data, that must report things about you to the Chinese Communist Party intelligence officials if they request it. And if TikTok or if ByteDance, its parent company, were to hand that data over, uh, were not to hand it over, if they don't hand it over, that is a crime in China and people are going to jail in China. They're going to be harassed. So they are required to hand it over. There's no question about that. And you are playing into that surveillance apparatus. Okay, but... Uh... I I only use TikTok to post silly videos of my of my cat. I don't have any dark secrets, so I don't care if they take all my data and and share it with whoever. They're taking your data and they're sharing it with a one-party authoritarian state. It's not like they're just sharing it with a regular old marketer and they're using it to train algorithms that can be used against the American nation if a war ever breaks out. Imagine what's going to happen. They have so TikTok has enormous algorithmic power, and in the future, this is the worry of many of America's leaders that they will take that data and they're going to turn it right around on us in the event of a serious conflict or big event. They're going to use it to manipulate Americans to send out fake news to make things look like what they're not, and it might just you know TikTok, especially among younger people is enormously popular. It's been the fastest growing social media app um, ever. I mean, faster than Facebook at its heyday. It's it's taking over the world of social media and it's the only way that many young people get their news. And if China controls that, the CCP controls that, uh, that's gonna be a disaster because they're gonna use it against us for propaganda operations. So you mean the kind of thing that we saw with um, uh, Cambridge Analytica sort of uh, manipulating public sentiment uh, through social media. Yeah, yeah. So think, you know, think Cambridge Analytica, which manipulated public sentiment. Now, uh, you know, instead of like it being, you know, one company, um, imagine it's the world's largest police state with one of the world's largest militaries and a dictator who uh, puts people in concentration camps. That's who's going to be manipulating you. Mm. Wow, that is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and you said earlier uh, in our conversation that although it there's no way to show it, but that perhaps this is something that they've already been subtly doing per to, let's say, the um, 
what we now call the wokes on the left, that maybe they've been influenced to some degree? I think it's possible. I mean, so personally, I see the wokes as a bit of a a, a wacky group that doesn't have much um, coherent intellectual grounding. Um, they literally believe that, you know, if one uh, person has the same hair color and eye color and skin color as um, as other people, that they must therefore form a tribe and must act in unison. Um, mm-hmm. It's truly, uh, it's like a disease of the mind to think that in a liberal democracy. I mean, come on, come on, guys. Like, you've got to do better than that. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really, you know, the, the, these woke mobs online, they do go around and try to cancel people. I don't take them too seriously because I think their ideas are just off the rate off the charts. Um, also, you know, a lot of people don't take them seriously. They don't have much influence in our government, in our Congress, in our major institutions. If they were to get influence in our major institutions, that would be sign for worry. But as long as they're restricted to social media, I think that we're going to be okay in the end. Mm. Right. Well, um, so what are you going to be doing this week? Um, so uh, on Monday, I'm going to be flying to Israel. I'm going to be flying into Tel Aviv, and I'm going to be covering the story of Israel amid war. Um, so I won't be writing about the war itself. I'm not really a war correspondent. I'm not the guy who wears the press vest with the big, you know, press letters in the front and you right. know, running through Gaza and taking photos. Uh, I'd have to lose a lot of weight and get fit for that. Um, but uh, you know, maybe one day, maybe one day I'll consider doing that. I, I will be in not. Israel. I would not. I would not. I'm not interested in that particular type of journalism. I will be uh, writing about the story of Israel, focusing on um, Israel as a nation and how the Israeli people built the economic and uh, social miracle that does exist there. I do think that. So there, there are reasons I'm doing this. I, I do think that um, many people have been unfairly critical of Israel. Uh, I think that, you know, despite, obviously, it's horrible, you know, the the way that um, women and children in Palestine live, you know, the the settlements, um, the illegal settlements, some of the crackpots out in the West Bank, there was one who just shot a Palestinian citizen today. There are um, horrible things, you know, Israel is not free of guilt. And I I think every reasonable person agrees with that. Um, But I do want to shine more of a light on the story of Israel itself. How did Israel become the only uh, Middle Eastern country that has, uh, one, an advanced and sustained democracy, two, high education levels, three, equal rights for women, uh, four, uh, you know, generally secular government, obviously a Jewish government, but not one that enforces Judaism on the entire population. It, it has a multicultural, diverse population of Arabs and Muslims and various other peoples, including my Uyghur friends who've lived in Israel. Israel accepted them with open arms from China as refugees. Hmm. Um, Let's put it this way. The Arab countries did not. The Arab countries, such as Egypt, deported Uyghurs. They sent them back to the camps. Um, Why is it that Israel, you know, it's a major hub for technology, agriculture, uh, you know, um, infrastructure. uh, You know, it's, it's, it's one of the most advanced economies in the world. And yet, uh, just two generations ago, it was one of the poorest countries in the world with few chances of making it anywhere. I mean, it, it had genocidal neighbors. They were going to, they, they, they did invade. They nearly ended Israel as we know it. They would have committed a genocide against the Israeli people. How does a country and a people go from that to the enormous success of today? And it has much more to do 
with oppressing Palestinians. I think the people on the far left want you to think that Israel showed up and stole all of this from Palestinians. That's not true. Israel built a nation and Israel did it with enormous success that all of its neighbors have failed at. And why is that? I want to answer that question. That sounds fascinating. I, I, I very much look forward to that. Um, and as soon as it is out, please let me know so I can uh, let everyone who's listening know about that. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, talk to you very soon. And Good to uh, talk, David. Yeah, take care. Stay well.